So this morning's scripture comes from Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to call an audible here because this is always a good idea. I'm ditching my intro because I found this quote that I posted on social media this morning for those who are missing. And I don't want you to just hear this and be like, oh, of course, like I know the right answer to these series of questions. And you do. Um, but can you answer them with any kind of integrity or, Lord, I even wish that that were true, which is what I mean by answering with integrity. And here's the quote from James Johnston. If God gave you health but didn't give you himself, would you be satisfied? If God gave you a nice home, nice vacations, and plenty of money but did not give you himself, would you be satisfied? If you went to heaven and the streets were solid gold, the air was clean and bright, there was no more sin, everyone got along without fighting, arguing, or conflict, but Jesus was not there, would you be satisfied? God himself is the one great blessing that makes all the other things he gives worthwhile. So I begin with that quote because that's what this psalm is about. David is once again on the run, maybe from Saul, maybe from Absalom, but clearly from the context, someone's trying to harm him, probably even kill him, which is why he references death, Sheol, the grave. But David is not merely trying to like run for his life and survive. David wants to thrive, and he's committing his life to God in such a way that he says, even if I lost my life. I so want you to be the center of my life and the focus of everything that I know that I'm assured of a resurrection to a forever kind of happiness, a forever kind of satisfaction because you are there. So here's this one big idea that I think David is communicating in the psalm. A God-centered life is a God-satisfied life. And out of the thousand different forms of satisfaction, levels of satisfaction that we could choose, David is expressing to us that a God-centered life is a life satisfied by God. We see here two distinct pursuits, then I'm going to give you five diagnostic questions, how do I know which of those I'm pursuing, and then two different outcomes. So I think the two distinct pursuits is fairly obvious in this text, 
But you notice that David says, I'm following after God while, verse 4, there are others who run after another God. And I want to talk about the negative side first and then the positive. The negative, this one pursuit, is chasing after idols. Again, verse 4. And if you look at it, it the verse 4 literally says something like this. It's interesting. It says, the sorrows of those who move swiftly after another shall multiply. And the ESV that we read this morning supplies the word God to clarify what is this another that people are chasing after. They're chasing after another God, another idol. And in David's time, those false gods, those idols would have been literal and tangible objects oftentimes, like little statues that were representations of something that obviously they did not see. And in David's time, people prayed to gods, and they bowed down to gods, and they sacrificed to gods, and they did all these things to try to appease a whole plethora of gods to give them things like fertility and rain and good harvests and victory in battle, those kinds of things. Well, an idol today, very few of you, hopefully, maybe none of you, have a statue in your home, and you say, like, this is a representation of what I worship. But a God is just anything that you substitute for the real God that is your source of pleasure, like the thing that you treasure most, the thing that you fear most, like respect, reverence, but actually fear, or just pursue in the place of God. And because an idol becomes something that you have to have, you're constantly chasing after it. And that's this interesting wordage here. If, if you've shifted your focus and the pursuit of your life from God, the true God, to anything, you will be chasing that thing and chasing that thing and chasing that thing because you feel like this is my source of life. This is my source of security. And we'll get into these diagnostics in a moment. But you're chasing, chasing, chasing things like the next relationship or more money or the next promotion, or the next vacation, or the next purchase, or the next word of validation. You're chasing and chasing, and, and it's never enough. That word of validation was nice, but you need the next affirmation, and the next, and the next, and the next, because you're a people pleaser. And that's his point, is like, you can choose that path of life to chase after another, but he's like, I'm not going to go there. Look at verse 4. He says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. So he's saying, I'm not going to worship these gods. I'm not going to take their, name, their names on my lips. And the contrast is actually verse 2 backing up. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And this interesting detail that I like to point out from time to time, just so you remember it when you're reading it, when you see Lord in all capital letters, that's actually God's name. It's Yahweh. And you can substitute, that. that is his name showing up there. When you see the other Lord, not all caps, that's a word like Adon or Adonai, which means like my master. And so David's saying, I won't take the names of these false gods on my lips, but this is what I say. Yahweh, you are my master. And you see verse 8, he's like, and I have set the Lord. And again, I have set Yahweh always before me. And the contrast is instead of chasing all these other gods because I have to have what they've promised me, I just set the Lord front and center in my life. And I'm not chasing, 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 chasing him because he's not running away from me. He's not over-promising and under-delivering as the gods do. He's just 
they're the central thing in my life. So this, this contrast is instead of like always chasing false gods, the other pursuit, verse 8, is simply following the Lord, following Yahweh. And by the way, this is obvious, but you will either follow God or not God. You will either serve God or not God. You will either worship God or you will worship not God. Because all of us worship, all of us pursue something, all of us serve someone or something. But I want to point out there are two different ways that you can follow God. You can follow God for God or you can follow God for his gifts. Okay? Here's how it goes for a lot of Christians. You've already decided what kind of life you want to have. You've already decided the things that you want to have, the relationships that are important to you. You've decided your career, vocational path. You've decided all these things. You've decided like when you're going to retire and what that's going to look like. And isn't very often prayer is not a way of communing with God and surrendering to God. It's a way of reminding God the life that you decided to have and what he's supposed to do for you and give you so that you can have the life that you want, the life that you've designed. And we live in such a free culture. In many ways, people are free to design their own lives in a way that previous generations would have never imagined. But in this scenario where you're following God essentially for his gifts, God's like the vending machine. Like you, you just, you put in your selection and your payment, you put in your tithe and then you pray and you press E4, you know, and you get the thing. And that's how we can treat God. He's like the genie in the bottle. You, you conjure him up and you're like, here's the next request you're supposed to do for me. And this is falling far short of treating God as God. When I was a kid, we often went to Florida. I had some grandparents that were snowbirds. So they, they were in small town Indiana during the hot months of the year. And when it got cold in Indiana and they were going to face snow, they went to Florida, which was awesome for us because I at least grow, grew up thinking they were very wealthy because we would go down to Florida. They lived on a pond. There was lots of fishing but, but even more importantly, it was like they had the money to send all of us to Disney World and Epcot and SeaWorld and Busch Gardens and Silver Springs and Seven Springs and the beach and all these things. And as I started to get older, I was like, man, I don't know if I'm going on vacation to get my grandparents or if I'm going on vacation to get the gifts from my grandparents. And then, you know, in my early, like, college years and seminary years when my grandmother was a widow, I, I did a lot of penance trying to make that up to her. You know, I did projects around her house and stuff. See, I'm here not for your gifts, but just because I genuinely do care. And by the way, my point is, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you're not a follower of God. But if you want to remain immature, just keep going to God for his gifts instead of going to God for God. Again, you may be a believer because you're a believer by grace through faith. But it's a, it's a mark of immaturity that we would go to God for his gifts more than we'd go to God for God. David is saying the opposite in verse 5. Notice this where he says, The Lord, Yahweh, is my portion and my cup. And his point is not, the Lord satisfies me with his gifts. His point is clearly, the Lord satisfies me. He satisfies me, okay? And I just want to pause there as we have, like, 
It's two divergent paths, but one takes a fork. And which of those in honesty do you find yourself on? Do you go after the things, the stuff, the idols? And we'll look at how you would know that in just a moment. Or are you really going after God? And if you are going after God, be honest enough to say, man, that is the way I pray. I, I, I have designed my life in the things that I want, and I use prayer as a way of reminding God of the things that he's not giving me and to ask for them. And there's a, there's a place for asking. Jesus, as he taught us to pray, says, here are the kinds of things that you're welcome to ask a loving and good father. But don't substitute the asking for the stuff as if what's really important to me, God, is that you have the power and the authority and the possessions to give me what I want. Now, these five diagnostic questions, and they're not necessarily posed as questions in the text, but this is like, how would I know? Functionally, how would I know if I'm pursuing idols in my life or if I'm pursuing God? And if I am pursuing God, how would I know if I'm pursuing God to get God? And these are a series of five parallel questions. Number one, who or what do you look to for protection. So verse 1, David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Verse 8, he says, because he, God, Yahweh, is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And verse 9, he says, my flesh also dwells secure. And this is just a reminder that David's life was filled with conflict. You can go back to the, like, first Samuel, and some of these kinds of books, and read about the life of David, and it was just rife with conflict with the king before him and the king after him and the son who wanted to usurp the king after him, and all this stuff is going on, and he's betrayed, he's abandoned, he's attacked by friends and family, he's near death multiple times. So this prayer is not like, God, you should insulate me in this bunker, you, my shelter. You should insulate me from all pain and difficulty and trials and danger. Rather, what he's saying is when conflict comes, when danger comes, God, you are my refuge. I'm as safe as you want me to be. And and he says, even if I die, I believe I have in an ultimate sense a resurrection life that I will never be shaken even if my enemies take my physical life from me. So I pause with this first question and acknowledge, like, we all want to feel safe. We all want to feel secure. We all want to feel grounded, protected. So what do you look to to provide that for you, just practically speaking? And I mean both the reality of safety and security, but also the feeling of it, because those are different. We want to feel safe, even if, you know, I'll tell my kids, like, the other, the other day, we've had a lot of hail this June, so it was hailing again the other afternoon. And our littlest goes over to the big windows of the great room, and he's looking at the hail just pour down on the backyard. And he's afraid. And, you know, I could tell him, like, the reality is you're secure. There's nothing for you to be afraid of. Like, these, these windows, with this size of hail, you know, and this strength of wind, you are, you are perfectly safe. The house is designed to protect you from this rain and these little pea-sized pieces of hail that are, that are loud, but you're safe. But we have, we have an, like an existential need built into us to feel safe, to feel protected and secure. And so what do you go to for that feeling? That's the question. And do you know money can be an idol doesn't have to be. There's nothing inherently wrong with, for mo- with money. But money could be your idol if it is your safety net. 
It's what you look to for protection. Or a relationship that could be perfectly healthy, and there's nothing wrong with that relationship per se, a relationship can become an idol when that is your safety net. You know, control. Like, I just need to be in control. I need to have my grip on everything can be an idol if that sense of, like, I'm in control is an idol to you. Politics. I mean, look at our culture. I mean, whether you're far right, far left, or somewhere in between, politics can be an idol if you're like, this is, this is my safety net. Like, if this gets voted in and, and these things get passed, and we, I saw this with, like, the Supreme Court rulings this week, that you have, like, people just melting down of, like, no one is safe anymore, and other people are like, everyone's safe now, and it's like, you know, I'm not wading into that of, like, who's right and wrong. There's nuance to this conversation, but the point is we can look to politics and say, that's my protection. That's my safety. That's my security. So who or what do you look to for that protection? Question number two, who or what do you look to for prosperity? And again, you have verse two where he says, I say to Yahweh, I have no good apart from you. And there's two ways you could take this. I think there's a wrong way and a right way. One way would be, be like, look at all this stuff. I would have none of this good stuff if not for God. And that's not what he's saying. He's literally saying, I have no good, not in this, I have no good apart from you. In other words, God, you are my good. You are my prosperity. And you see that confirmed in verses 5 and 6, where he says, The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And I used to be like, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant, like, what is that? Well, Lot and the lines and the inheritance is actually a reminder of in Judges, or sorry, in uh, Joshua, when the people of God are first moving into the promised land, and God says, here's what I want you to do, leadership of Israel. I want you to literally draw lots for the different tribes, and you give them different allotments of land that are marked out with specific boundaries and that is that tribe's inheritance. So they will pass that to their children and their children's children and so on. That's their inheritance. And, and David's point here is not like, wow, I got really lucky because my dad passed along to me this really amazing property. He's actually looking all the way forward and saying, I've thrown in my lot with God. I mean, the, the lines, I mean, as ambiguous as that is, where, where are the lines of this property? He's like, well, my inheritance is what I inherit from God. He's talking about a future and eternal inheritance, not some little scrap of land in Palestine that he inherited from his father. Okay? Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with money or material possessions, even lots and lots of them. But I'm curious how you would define prosperity. I'm curious what kinds of prosperity you are pursuing in your life. Because some people are just like, I don't care about money. I want experiences. Or I don't care about material things, but I want to like, have a healthy life. And for you, prosperity could be like hiking every week on the cheap. And other people, it really is like, no, I need to accumulate lots of stuff and have bigger and better and nicer and newer all the time. And then the question is, who or what do you rely on to prosper you? So hard work is great. The Bible commends hard work. Do you know hard work, your work ethic, can be an idol 
if it's what you rely on for your prosperity, however you define that. Networking other people, also known as manipulating. <laughs> you know, there's, there, I know there's a positive side of networking. You gotta make friends in the industry and quid pro quo and all that. But you know networking can be an idol if it's what you rely on for your prosperity. Um, I see this in our culture that like we would not say it's this. I'm just calling it out. A stingy lack of generosity can be an idol. Uh, we call it frugality. It's a stingy lack of generosity can be an idol if it's what you rely on for prosperity. Like the only way I'll ever get ahead is if I don't give to God, I don't share with others. That's an idol. Relying on your investment strategy can be an idol. Relying on material things or money itself can be an idol if you're saying, that's what I look to for my prosperity. Now, third diagnostic question, who or what do you look to for direction? Look at verse 7 with me. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. Now, the order here is very important. Order here is very important. There's this acronym in computer science, G-I-G-O. Garbage in, garbage out. Okay? If you're programming something and the data that you are inputting into your program is a disaster, the product is going to be a disaster. So David says, and notice the order here, he says, first of all, I am filling my heart and blessing God for giving me counsel. In other words, I'm filling my heart with his counsel, his plan, his purposes for my life, his will. I'm filling my heart with that. Then when I'm lying awake at night and I'm just ruminating and I'm meditating on different things and I'm looking at the struggle I'm actually in the middle of and I'm on the run and it's very dangerous, the thing I'm meditating on, the thing I'm rehearsing is what got put in in the first place, which is the counsel of God. And he says, and this, and I don't like the word instructs. It's actually, this corrects me. This disciplines me. So he's not just like, I'm listening to my heart at night, but then reading the Bible during the day, which would be often at odds with each other. He's saying, I'm inputting the word of God. That is my direction. And then all throughout the night, I'm, I'm saying, okay, heart, life, you've, you've got to be correct. You've got to align with what God says is true and with what God is directing me into. Okay, so if you seek counsel from fools, going with garbage in, garbage out, if you seek counsel from fools, you will be foolish. If you seek counsel from just like our culture that is a worldly culture, you will be worldly. So the question is, who do you seek counsel from on a regular basis? Who are you allowing to speak into your life and kind of set the pace. And if you're not doing it with intentionality, you're doing it by accident. What I mean is like, just culture is indoctrinating you all the time. You know, that favorite podcast is who is discipling you. That favorite Netflix or Apple TV series that has a ton of worldview baked into. And I've talked even recently with a number of different ones of you. Start, I started on the series and it was so fun and it was so light. And then you get to season three or five. And it's just this deep, heavy and cultural indoctrination into all this. And I was like, yeah, that was the hook. They got you. And then they're speaking into your life. They're counseling you. They're telling you how it is. That peer group that you desperately want the respect and validation of can be an idol. That social media influencer can be an idol. 
Like any of these things can be an idol if you're looking to them and saying, instead of God, in place of God, more than God, alongside of God, I'm allowing you to direct my steps. So who do you look to for direction? Number four, who do you look to for salvation? Verse 10. Who do you look to for salvation? He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And when David wrote this, I think this is all he meant. God, even if I die and my body goes in the grave, like Sheol is the Old Testament word for grave, essentially. And sometimes it has more meaning than that. But I think he's just saying, even if I die and I go in the grave, I trust you that that is not the end of me. And like other Old Testament saints, like true followers of God, David believed in a resurrection to eternal life. And that's, that's what he's saying here. I believe there's an ultimate salvation that's going to overcome my sin and the consequences of my sin and my death, and I will live. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And I could pause right there and say, like, there's already an application, like, who or what do you look to to avoid the consequences for your sin? Because we all sin, we're all broken, we all fall short. We often confess here on Sunday mornings that we, we sin against God in the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone. The question is, who or what do you look to to avoid the consequences of that sin? And I'll tell you, friends, self-righteousness is an idol. Self-righteousness is when you think well, I avoid the consequences of my sin because my own good works. Like, I'm an awesome person doing amazing things, and I just think I'm good enough that God will overlook the wrong I've done. That's an idol. Self-justification is another idol. Self-justification is like, well, I did those things, but see, if you understood, like, why, or this person did this to me, and we're justifying. We're, we're lessening the impact and the seriousness of our sin by trying to kind of explain it away to, to justify ourselves. And certainly other religious paths are idolatry. Even when those religious paths say we are not a religion, we are uh, simply a thing. You know, we're simply a worldview. We're simply an ideology. Well, an ideology is a religion. And if you're looking to that to rescue you from your sin, it's idolatrous. But there's something else I want to take like a momentary deep dive on here. Because of how the New Testament handles this verse, Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So do you know in Acts 2, Peter is preaching a sermon in Jerusalem. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching a similar sermon. Both of them quote this specific verse. Both of them say this. This verse didn't ultimately apply to David. Like, how do we know that? Because his tomb's right over there. Okay? Like, King David, as, as great and mighty, as godly as many chapters of his life were, King David died and was buried, and his bones and his body decayed in that tomb. So David was not ultimately speaking about himself. And both Peter... And Paul go on to say, David was actually prophesying about the Holy One. You see that in 1610? The Holy One. How would you know who the Holy One is? Well, clearly, and apparently he dies and goes to Sheol. He goes to the grave. But God, the Father, doesn't allow him to see corruption, which is the word for decay or degeneration. Okay. Well, David decayed and was degenerated. Do you know who wasn't? 
is Jesus. And, and Peter and Paul will go on to say, we know that Jesus was crucified and died and was buried, but three days later he was resurrected again, and hundreds of you met him, saw him. Some of you ate with him, talked with him, you touched him. Okay, And this isn't some random occurrence that this guy came out of a grave. He's like, David prophesied this resurrection would happen to show us who the Holy One is who is intended to save us from our sins. And so we come back to this fourth diagnostic question, who or what do you look to for salvation? And you realize the answer is not just generically God, but it's Jesus Christ specifically. Jesus Christ is the one who lived the perfect life that we should have lived, yet who died as a sacrifice for our sins and rose again and says, follow me. So who do you look to for salvation? Finally, who do you look to for satisfaction? Or what do you look to for satisfaction? So verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And verse 11, this climax, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I want you to notice these verses are overflowing with happiness and contentment and delight. And where is that satisfaction? Where is that joy to be found? He says, this is all based on the fact that I have set Yahweh ever right before me. Because my life is centered on him, this is the result. In his presence, there is this fullness of satisfaction and joy and delight forevermore. I think that's so important for us to hear. I think, I, I think we have a tendency, even as Christians, to be a little bit like Eve in the Garden of Eden, where we're like, well, I know God, but, you know, my idea of God is like, yeah, he's God. I should honor him with my life. But if I follow him, if I give up all this stuff and I embrace the life that he wants, I mean, the good news is I get to go to heaven when I die. The bad news is I'm going to be miserable. And some of you think that. If I follow his path for my life, for my relationships, for how I express my sexuality, for what I eat and drink and how much I eat and drink and where I stop, and we could go on and on how much money I spend on these things instead of these parts. Like, I'm just going to be miserable. But I get to go to heaven when I die. And so we chase after that other stuff that we think God is withholding it from us. We're just like Eve in the Garden of Eden. God's, God's probably stingy. He's pro he probably doesn't want me to, to be happy. He wants me to be holy, right? Some of you heard that. Like, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. As if those are like polar opposites. Like, this is weird. This is weird that you would put them on a, a line graph and be like, holiness is over here and happiness is over here. Because David's like, I want to be holy. I'm striving to put God right in the middle and say, you direct my life. You counsel me in the night. And in this same place, I am overflowing with contentment and satisfaction and delight and joy. And so it's a, it's a lie of Satan that you will never experience this holy, invincible satisfaction unless you just do your own thing. So let me run through a couple of these. For, this is for our culture. Sex is an idol because it's, it's your real source of satisfaction. Money's an idol because it's your real source of satisfaction. That next promotion, that, that career path, the ladder you're climbing, it is a, it is a god. It's an idol because that is your real source of satisfaction. 
Marriage for some of you is an idol because that is this, like maybe you're looking forward to it and being like, then I'll be satisfied. Or maybe you're in it and you're fighting, fighting, fighting to not just have a normal Christian marriage, but to like somehow hold it all together and make it just absolutely perfect because that's where you think you're going to find your satisfaction. Leisure is an idol. Just having to have the most fun all the time instead of being truly satisfied is an idol because you, that's, that's what really satisfies you. Food and drink. Um, we could go through a, a whole litany of ideologies like autonomy. Like if I call my own shots, then I'll be satisfied because I can do whatever I want to do. What if we simply believed and trusted God that following him puts us on the path to the truest, deepest, and most human satisfaction now and forever? That's the point of David's psalm. He's like, Lord, I am committed to you because I believe that following you, trusting you, putting you front and center in my life and letting everything orbit around you, that will satisfy me. And let me just show you here a moment in closing these two different outcomes. There's a warning in verse 4 and there's this promise in verse 11, okay? Because the warning is that chasing after idols leads to multiplied sorrows. He says, verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Sorrows means like a wound or suffering. Why is that the case? And you may be even on a path right now and you're like, there's no wound, there's no suffering. This is great because right now that thing is satisfying you. You think you've achieved that thing. You've achieved the protection. You've achieved the direction. You've achieved the contentment through the pursuit of something other than God. Then if that's you, talk to someone older who's pursued the exact same thing. Because it didn't land where they thought it was going to. They have chased and chased and chased. You are chasing, chasing, chasing. You are getting exhausted, and the day will come when you realize this is futility, and I have this deep wound because I've wasted my life, or I've wasted this season of my life just doing my own thing, pursuing whatever I want. I always think of that interview with Tom Brady where he's, he's already won multiple Super Bowls, and the interviewer is like, so this, this has to feel amazing. Like, you are the pinnacle of your sport. And, and he truly is, okay? He went to Michigan, so there was that redeeming factor. Um, he truly, like, he's the greatest quarterback of all time by many, many, many metrics. But, but what a sad thing to hear him say, like, actually, it's empty. Like, yeah, I now, I now hold multiple Super Bowl rings. I make all this money. I'm married to a supermodel. He's like, it is, I feel so empty. Because often you will pursue something and you don't feel the big letdown, but you get the thing that you're like, this is everything. If I just get this, I'll feel amazing, I'll be amazing. And you get the thing and you're like, that still wasn't it. That wasn't the thing that was going to make me know real, lasting contentment. See, idols lie. They overpromise, they underdeliver, they allure you, which in the middle of the word allure, you'll notice the word lure. And very often you've grabbed that thing and you didn't see the hooks. And there's the wound. And you're stuck apart from Jesus. You're stuck and you're wounded and you're hurt and you're ruined. 
But the flip side of that, the positive, the promise is that following the Lord leads to not just happiness, but he says fullness of joy that goes on and on and on forever. And it's not just like, okay, so by committing to Christ, I can have a miserable life now, but at least I get this forever thing out there. And that's not what he's saying. He says, I can, I can kind of borrow from the future knowing that that is true, and I can live in that truth now. And even when I'm on the run, even when I'm having to take shelter in God, I can know this contentment and satisfaction now. And I'll give you a couple examples of this. By the way, study after study after study shows that the highest levels of joy and contentment and satisfaction in our culture come through things like this. A biblical marriage. You know, there are all these studies from all these people that are paid all this money to do these studies to research, like, sexually, who's most satisfied? And do you know who it is? On, on reports that people are doing of themselves, here I'm reporting on my level of satisfaction, like, consistently, it's people in a, like, what I would say is a biblical marriage. And they're just faithfully committed to each other. And you're like, but it, wouldn't it be fun? Like, wouldn't you be satisfied if you could always chase the next thing and have this new electric experience? And it's like, no, because the people that do that end up bearing shame and brokenness and hurt and wounds and deep cuts and pain because we're not made that way. The people who are experiencing satisfaction are those who are walking in a biblical marriage in community with people who can help them with their biblical marriage. Here's another one. The people who are happiest, most content, and most satisfied in this life are the people who are generous. And we think, like, if I, if I hoard, if I have more and more stuff for me, and life is about me, and I'm, I'm getting mounds of cash, and I'm setting up for the future, and, and it's just like, those people are miserable, and people who just, like, give and give and give and give, like, over and over on studies that they do show the generous people are the content people. Another one, do you know those who work and rest, according to the biblical pattern in Genesis 1, are the happiest, most content people? It's not the people who just rest, 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 and have no hard work stretching themselves, exerting themselves, and neither is it the people who just are the workaholic. Work, 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 no rest, no play, because I am working, I'm awesome, I'm crushing it, I'm laying up for the future. The people who are most content are the people who are following God's directive and following God and saying, I'm going to work hard, then I'm going to rest. The most content people are those who see themselves as God sees them, not as culture sees them, not as they want to see or identify themselves. So, I mean, a couple things, that it's just like, I am saint and sinner. When I see that I am saint and sinner, I am, I'm broken, but I am deeply loved and adopted by God. There is a happiness and contentment that comes from embracing the truth of my real identity that I don't know apart from that. And then one more, culture said, like all the studies show, those who are most deeply happy and content and joyful and satisfied are people who constantly forgive. And we have this other weird thing that goes on in our culture that's like, this person hurt me, I'm going to hurt them back, and if I hang on to this, I'll kind of have this power over this other person. I don't know if you've ever felt that, but it's, it's this very sinister thing of just like, if I've got, I've got this forever, I've got this like ace in the hole, I can pull it out when I need to use it against this person, and it's like, this will be awesome. And the Bible actually says, like, you do that, and that thing grows and grows and grows. You do not have control over that other person that hurts you. They continue to have control over you. 
and wound you and hurt you and ruin you. And it's actually the people who just say, like, God, again, I thought I'd forgiven this thing, but it's back again. And I, like, I let go. I release this to you, God. I'm going to tell this person I've forgiven them. Those are the people who are happy and content. And my point is, as you look at even the law of God, let alone the person of Jesus Christ, we've got to lose this mindset that if I do this, it'll be kind of miserable. It'll be really hard. Uh, It'll be bad news, but at least I get God forever. Because it's just simply not true. It's actually by walking with God as the light to your feet. He lights your path. And you're spending that time in communion with God, in the presence of God, enjoying God. You get the delight. Tim Keller concludes, if God is our greatest good, we get what can't be lost and will only increase infinitely.